0: Hey everyone, welcome to Chris. My name is Chris, and on this episode we're going to be talking about 2666, the novel by Roberto Bolaño. Uh, A little bit of backstory as I head into this, because to me this novel is so tied up with the experience that went into reading it. I was 22 years old and living in Australia. I just moved there after college, and I wanted to write a novel. I had this idea, I had plotted it all out, and it was going to be the next great American novel as they all are going to be, and I got there ready to go. It was set in Australia. Oh, I was going to crush it. When I finally started trying to write it, I realized I had no idea how to write a literary, literary fiction, none. I'd read a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy in high school, and like that was kind of easy and palatable but I wanted to write like a Pulitzer Prize winning book. I gotten that pretentious highbrow attitude about things and I didn't do all the reading that I should have in college. I would often skip it <laughs> because eh, college bored me. So I realized that if I wanted to write a book of that caliber, I probably had to do a, a lot more reading of books of that caliber. So I was working at a subway, uh, just making sandwiches (laughs) during the work hours and then reading like 30 to 50 pages every day and writing short fiction and poetry and I was reading books like uh as I look over at the bookshelf uh Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Ulysses, uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, Rashomon, uh, the Collection of Short Stories from Japan, uh, a Pale View of Hills by Ishiguru, uh, Underworld by Don DeLillo, Catch-22, um, I mentioned Ulysses, <laughs> Sound and the Fury, uh, Moby Dick, I read Moby Dick and Ulysses in like back-to-back months, Under the Volcano by Malcolm Lowry, and we're talking these towering literary works, a lot of like huge books, very poetic fiction. Um, So that was taking up a lot of my days i ended up quitting subway and started working at university of new south wales in their study abroad department just helping study abroad kids uh, register for classes and get adjusted to (laughs) uh, for the spring semester and get adjusted to what sydney had to offer and then i was out of work but got a job at berkalu books which was a sydney-based bookstore uh, had some really cool stores throughout the city, but this one was not a really cool one. It was a Overstock store, so all of the extra books they had from all their main stores were just sent to this one, and it was just a block from the beach, which was a great location. Right, you could stand at the front door and look out and see Coogee Beach, see the ocean. It was it was awesome. So I think they thought that people walking to the beach or going to the beach would stop by the bookstore and pick up a book and just have a great read on the sand. And that didn't happen. <laughs> the store, I would work six to 10 hour shifts at this place and it was so small, only one person would work. And I'd sometimes have like less than five sales for the whole shift. It's just hours of me sitting there, reading, writing, Uh, You had unlimited internet, which in Australia at the time, I don't know if it's still like this, you paid for gigabyte packages, so you might get 300 gigabytes for the whole month that if you were watching videos on YouTube or anything like that, you could burn through pretty quickly. So I was just able to stream MLB TV and uh, talk to all these people rather than, I didn't have internet at my place, I was just renting a room from a dude. Uh so I was going to internet cafes, which uh, a lot of money. A lot of money for a very limited return. Uh so this job was tremendous, but I had a I had a snobbish bookshelf in there where it was just all the books I deemed high enough quality to be literature. Really pretentious, I understand that. But we're talking just like any Hemingway book that came in, all the like the Penguin books or vintage International. Um like the French Lieutenant's Woman, or Jane Austen books, uh, any other classics that would come in, Frankenstein, that kind of stuff would go on that shelf, it was my own little special shelf, and one day, 2,666, came into the store, and I put it on the shelf, and I kept looking at it, because I remembered going to Borders back in Ohio, if you remember Borders, and that... 2066 was being kind of heavily advertised it was the national book award winner and uh, I never knew what it was I just knew it was this huge book and people seemed to like it so I bought it on a whim brought it home and at that point I just read Cosmopolis by Don DeLillo and uh, The Sound and the Fury by Faulkner and was really into this poetic literature and thinking that all literature that was at this level of greatness had to be really poetic in the writing style, so I expected Bologno in 2666 to be the same, and I didn't want to read it at the moment because I just read Underworld before that as well, which Underworld's another just gigantic book, <laughs> and didn't want to commit to something else that was 700, 800, 900 pages. Uh, but I wanted to get a taste of Bolaño's writing style, so when I got home from that shift, I opened up the book, and I was just going to read the first five pages, and I read for four hours, just couldn't put it down, kept going and going, it was drinkable, like, this was literature that you could easily work through, I mean books like Blood Meridian and Under the Volcano broke my brain when I first tried to read them, because I wasn't leveled up enough to follow along. I'd read a page and realize that I didn't know anything that I just read. Like I couldn't handle the input to my brain. Same thing with hopscotch when I first tried to read hopscotch. Oh god I read hopscotch in that time too. So many books. Um, So reading something that was as light in quotes as 2666 was was really refreshing the narrative voice wasn't this heavy poetic thing but was very conversational and you could just get into the flow of what was going on that was the other big thing about the writing it, Bolaño stacked these little vignettes or short uh, scenes just quick 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 and giving you insight into these four critics that we came to learn uh, came to know and follow in the chapter and just because you're getting these quick hits and moving on to the next thing, it means it's really easy just to keep going like, well, one more. Okay, one more. Okay, one more. It's something I just uh, encountered recently with Norman Mailer's Executioner song. That's another book that's like 1,200 pages, huge. And it should read more dense, but it doesn't because he just breaks it up into these little bite-sized moments uh, that really give it a flow of, okay, I can just read another page. This is going to go fast. Okay, another page, another page. And the next thing you know, you've gone through the whole book far quicker than you might a Cormac McCarthy or William Faulkner book, despite the length. So Bolagno had that going on. And the thing that I always loved about the structure of the book was the fact that there's, there's two things to the structure. And I think this is the thing that I, I like to focus on most when I Look back on what I took away from 2666 in terms of structuring works and analyzing works is how he hooks and how he delivers on those hooks. So you have two main hooks in this book it's the murders that are going on in Santa Teresa and who Arcamboldi, the author, is. So he goes about it in two different ways, which is actually kind of fascinating too. Arcamboldi. You're introduced to upfront from the critics. All four critics are Archimboldi scholars, and they know his work in and out. But Archimboldi is a mysterious figure; nobody really knows anything about him. So you get to watch as the four of these critics, scholars, really their careers develop, and Archimboldi goes from this fringe, cult author that they study and write about to a prominent, well-known figure. And they're kind of rock stars because they know um, everything about him. Not a well known figure, but his work is well known and well regarded. So they, being the, these critics being the foremost scholars of him, uh, get some shine from that. But even they don't know anything really about his life, his background, other than he's German. I think that's the one thing that they know. So their hook is they're trying to find him and that seems like it's going to be the main mystery of the book oh when are we going to find out about Archimboldi? and they end up going to mexico to try to find him and even though that's the larger mystery of their section the real thing that drives the section is the drama of their relationship them starting out as four individuals the growing friendship or the start of their friendship and what that morphs into as it becomes very intimate and breaks down those walls of just friendship to almost like life partners in a way, but how it then goes beyond that to destruction. They care too much about each other. Things get too entangled and the friendship starts to fall apart. And by the end, it feels like, will they ever reach the point where they were at again. So you see this thing begin, peak, and dissolve all while they're trying to hunt for Arkham I there's a lot of beauty in that where how and a lot to learn just in how you can have that broader mystery hook, but tell this story within that that really has all the emotional impact, which I guess movies have done for a while, that's where the McGuffin comes from, right? Like uh, the Maltese Falcon, the old school movie, everybody's trying to find the Maltese Falcon and get the Maltese Falcon, but the main story is what's happening to the characters as they go about that. So the part about the critics kind of has that. The thing that stood out to me at that time, though, was that the critics never show back up. I thought they were going to be main characters of this story, but when we move into the part about Amalfitano, the critics are gone. Amalfitano, we were introduced to in their section as when they go to Mexico to find Arcimboldi or search for him, Amalfitano, excuse me, a professor that they stay with, but he's kind of ancillary to that. When we get the section about him, he's also very ancillary, and you're just kind of figuring out and learning about him, but the thing that's going on that I guess we may not be aware of is how Bolaño is introducing us to the murders, because even though Arcimboldi is the dominant mystery element or the dominant uh, secondary figure of the critics portion at one point when they're in Mexico, we're introduced to the idea that there are these murders going on. And at that point it's very, not a big deal (laughs) you might not even think a second thought about oh there's murders going on and it's treated like that and everybody moves on when we get to the part about Amalfitano it comes into a bit more focus because it's these murders of women and Amalfitano has a daughter who's in the age range of these girls and women that are being murdered so even though a lot of his section is about other things about the failure of his marriage about his professorship in Mexico and all these things, his relationship with his daughter, there's an increasing fear about what's going to happen to his daughter that starts to pervade that section as we become more aware of these murders that are taking place. So even though the section might feel like what was the point of all of that, the point of all of that is to give some insight into uh, the zeitgeist of the moment and create a tone That's going to carry over into the other sections. And just be another step into these murders. So the third part. The part about Fate. uh, Makes the murders far more prominent. As Fate is a reporter. Who is assigned to investigate these murders. Actually no. He's going for a boxing match. But he wants to talk about the murders. Because he hears about them. And decides it's far more interesting. So. Now the murders become, like Ark and Boldy in the first part, the main mystery that a character is pursuing. And Fate ends up meeting up with Rosa Amalfitano, Malfitano's daughter, and they get into a situation where there's a very real danger to them both. It seems like they might get murdered by these guys that Fate gets in with uh, that are kind of in the more uh, party crowd, of Mexico or Santa Teresa um, they're going to the clubs they have some money they have that sense of danger about them so when fate ends up with Rosa it pisses one of them off and there's a the very real likelihood that they could be murdered and the section ends with fate and Rosa escaping and Amalfitano helping or forcing that escape asking fate to take Rosa away because he's worried about his daughter's health And it's that sense of drama and murder (laughs) that we end that section with that then leads into the part about the crimes, which details 112 murders over the course of the chapter, which is crazy. And you think it would be dramatic, especially in the way that the part about fate ends. Like the sense of murder there is really rendered in the... uh, not just cinematic, but the narrative tension way, the dramatic way that you'd expect from a book or story, where you're caught up in the emotion and you feel the emotion. So when you have a whole chapter that's like 200 pages dedicated to murder, you think that it might have a similar dramatic tone to it that's going to get you invested and caught up in the emotion, but instead it's very clinical. It's just Bolaño writing all these vignettes They're like, this girl was 17 years old. She worked at this factory. She had friends, and one day she was walking home and never made it home. They found her body. She had been brutally attacked and raped, and yeah, over and over and over again. It's very clinical. So instead of you being horrified by the dramatic way that we're kind of uh, scared for fate and Rosa— the murder is made so clinical and removed from drama that it becomes all the more realistic and horrifying as you just get story after story after story of these murders taking place in Santa Teresa. And it might just be that we're told about 112 and that the actual body counts in the hundreds. I can't remember, (laughs) but it's still a significant number in the three figures. Uh, the interesting thing about this, he breaks up the murders with a story about the police department and kind of uh, the ineptitude of the police to kind of figure out who's doing this. It gets blamed on this guy, Klaus Haas, but it brings up three kind of potentials uh, that the murders could be on. Because some of the murders, Bolano straight up tells us that it was an angry boyfriend or... Uh, this guy that knew the girl and just decided to kill her. So you see in a lot of the time that it's just these random uh, bursts of emotion where these men kill these women. And that seems to almost make this a diagnosis of a cultural problem, that Bolaño, the author, is looking at something in the culture of either just men and how men treat women or Mexico specifically – I don't know anything about mexico having never really been there to comment on that but it's another way to view what bolaño is saying or the point that he's trying to make with this that there's just this uh energy there a mindset there that causes these men to snap and do this which reminds me of uh girl with the dragon tattoo the original name of girl with the dragon tattoo is men who hate women and explore this idea that there's some men that just want to enact violence on women and what is the psychology around that what is the the atmosphere that breeds that and girl with the dragon tattoo it stays more specific uh, to just a couple of men in the book but Bolaño seems to take a much more uh, cultural zeitgeist perspective on it but That's not even the main takeaway because there's still a subplot that makes the murders maybe seem like part of a syndicate or part of just the cartel or something that the wealthy do and get away with because they can. Um, That it's not just a cultural problem, but a problem with this group of people. And that's a different argument altogether and a different uh, takeaway altogether. But then it also puts the blame on this guy Klaus Haas who gives it more of a serial killer feel. Like, could there just be this one monster that's going out and doing this kind of thing? So we never are told specifically who's committing all of these murders. We're just shown three potential situations. That there's a single person that's doing it, that there's a wealthy group of people that do it and get away with it because these are their predilections, or that there's something in the culture that causes, that makes it more prone for men to do this and have this inflated uh, murder account specifically in this city. All very fascinating to me how he develops that and gives you these threads to kind of try to pull apart and take away from. So you have that with the part about the crimes, and that leads to then the part about Arkham Boldy. We come full circle back to Arkham and the final section of the book is learning everything about him. <laughs> and there's something so cool about that because the critics all wanted to know about Arkham Boldy. Their whole life was dedicated to him, but they couldn't find out anything about the man. And here we are, getting to learn everything that they don't know there's something kind of dickish about that (laughs) like these characters like i feel bad for the characters in a way but it also puts the reader in a position of superiority over the characters that there were these characters that longed for this so much and yet we're the ones that get the information that they'll never have i don't know why that there's something powerful to that (laughs) To me, that you're able to create a dynamic between the reader and the characters and a relationship with the reader and characters that goes beyond just the reader feeling for them or having this more uh, voyeuristic relationship as you just watch them and care about them. This seems to get more personal as they wanted something and you, the reader, now possess it. And that breaks down the barrier between you and the characters in a way that I don't think a lot of books or movies are able to do and is just such a cool tactic or technique to me. Um, And the fact that he's able to dovetail these things, that at the end of Archimboldi's chapter, he's showing up because Klaus Haas, who's blamed for these murders, despite saying that it was actually the son of a rich... Uh, guy in Santa Teresa that's committing the murders, it's Klaus that's going to take the downfall for them so Arkham shows up to kind of accept the blame and clear his son's name because they have a similar build and he's at the end of his life and his nephew I think I just called him his son a couple times his nephew has more to live for and this is the request of his sister was to save her son There's something really poetic about knowing that there are people out there that committed this crime, and somebody that was going to be blamed for it. And Klaus is completely innocent, right? He seems like he probably did kill somebody. So even if he's the one that they're all pinned on, there's still a sense of justice if he goes down for it. Where Arkham is an innocent. If he's ultimately the one to take the fall... That's such a bitter indictment of society and people and culture. And you could also read it that Arcamboldi, he's set up as the main artist in this world, right? Or one of them. There's the guy that cuts his hand off the painter. But Arcamboldi is kind of the one that the book focuses on the most. So for this writer that's considered this great figure who's being nominated for the Nobel Prize that he's the one that's ultimately blamed for these murders when he's completely innocent. There's something powerful about that as well and a statement that I think Bolaño is probably looking to make there as well in terms of how art will be treated and how the artist will be treated by culture as things start to go to shit. It's the artist that tends to be blamed and crucified before anybody else that actually deserves The blame and criticisms uh, and the justice gets it Um, that's interesting as well so you have all of those things going on and I think the third point that I also really take away from Bolaño's work here is that I talked earlier about the poetic writing uh, of Faulkner of DeLillo of Hemingway and uh, James Joyce and that Bolaño didn't really have that same poetry to his writing. There's moments of it, and it's ironic because Bolaño was a poet, but despite there being the moments of poetry, it's not very lyrical in the way that those others are, and he tells more than he shows. So he might tell you everything that a character is thinking and feeling in a moment rather than showing it and being subtle, right? Like, DeLillo and Cosmopolis often doesn't necessarily tell you what the character is feeling, he's letting the scenes, he's describing the scenes and letting the subtext build and asking you to put together what's going on. That's really the basis of showing, right? They're playing charades and we're trying to figure out what's being shown to us beyond the superficial. Um, The example I always come back to is, and it's just a brief example, if you're showing You might say a character opens the door and slams the door, curses under his breath, walks up to, looks around the room, marches over to his fish tank and punches the fish tank. It doesn't break. He curses again, goes and grabs a waffle iron, and breaks the fish tank. Only then does he smile. We're left to wonder why. You're never told that he's mad. You're just shown that he's mad and we're left to wonder why he's mad and going to take it out on his fish tank. You have all these questions that aren't necessarily answered up front and subtext that's created through the lack of context. If I were to tell that scene, it would be, he opens the door uh, furious from getting fired from his job. He's never been more mad. He looks around for something to break he sees his fish tank, and he's always hated those fishes, having to care for them, it's been more of a burden than anything in his life, and right now he wants to unburden himself. So he punches the glass, when that doesn't work he knows he has to get something more forceful, so he walks over to the waffle iron. You can tell the difference already, right? Uh, There's more context, there's less room for guessing. You're following along without having to think about why this is happening as you're being told. So showing is more of an active engagement because you have to think through. Telling is more of a passive engagement because you just get to follow along without really having to question anything. So Bolaño having the style that tells us so much about what the characters are thinking and feeling and why they're doing the things that they do, it might seem like 2,666 would have less subtext, less room to develop nuance and theme. But the main takeaway that I got from the writing in that style is that there are different levels to that. So you could have multiple scenes that are very, that are done in a style that tells. So you follow along all those scenes very well Uh, without any questions, but the subtext is in the juxtaposition of those scenes and those scenes being part of the same story. So if you never tell why those scenes are together, (laughs) that's why it creates a subtext. So we have these five books, right, that make up 2,666. While each one is very much done in the style of telling you what's going on, we're never told what the larger picture is. We're never told why we have Amalfitano as a focus character. We're never told why we have Fate as a focus character. What the relationship between Amalfitano uh, section and Fate section is. So that's where the subtext comes in is on the larger scale and scope. So you can still have a style that tells and end up very literary with a lot of subtext, a lot of depth just because you're still showing on the larger scope of everything. So that was a huge lesson that I took away from this book as well as just how to structure a damn great story and make something that's as immense as 2,666, uh, not only relatable, but enjoyable. (laughs) Um, So I highly recommend reading if you haven't, And if you've listened to all of this without having read 2,666, amazing. Thank you. (laughs) And if you have enjoyed 2,666, I recommend going to Executioner's Song next and checking out Mailer. Uh, Not as huge of a scope and not as literary in terms of uh, how many characters we get to and the situations we get to, but very similar in terms of just the ability they have to take something immense and make it uh enjoyable scene by scene moment by moment and doing that in a way that is both um mainstream but also literary in its depth top notch so if you have any thoughts questions concerns about 2666 or any uh Uh, requests for what book i talk about next or movie tv show album you can email those to newschoolchris at gmail.com or hit me up on twitter at kanye podcast or leave a comment if you're watching this on youtube uh, in the comment section until next time i'm chris and this has been chris